You're listening to Show for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are interested in raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name's Jesse. And I'm Rachel. And we'll be your host for this half hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Show for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. Today we're talking about politics in the library. First up, Celine Garot-Brennan and Larissa McLeod will be speaking with Michael McNally, an assistant professor here at the University of Alberta from the School of Library and Information Studies, and Sam Popovich, a Discovery Systems librarian here at the U of A. Today, they'll be talking about politics in the library, looking at topics such as political neutrality and how politics influence theories and behaviors within the profession. I'm just going to get first Sam to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his work, and then Michael to introduce himself and tell us a bit about his work, too. Uh, thanks, Celine. I'm Sam Popovich. I'm the Discovery Systems Librarian at uh, University of Alberta Libraries, which means I work primarily on the technology side. My research interests are um, primarily Marxism, librarianship, and technology, um, which I guess I've been I've been sort of doing off and on ever since library school, though I've had an interest in, in Marxism and critical theory going back further than that. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, so my name is Mike McNally, and I'm an assistant professor at the School of Library and Information Studies here at the U of A. Uh, and so I kind of teach a, a range of courses. Uh, one of those includes the foundations course that uh, all students take in their first year uh, and a number of different electives that changes uh, in any given academic year. Uh, in terms of my research, uh, focused generally in the area of information policy. I've done uh, most of my work in two areas, copyright and, uh, and telecom, specifically broadband policy. Uh, and, and much like Sam, uh, you know, a lot of critical theory influences uh, much more strongly in the uh, the dissertation work I did, but still using uh, various political economy frameworks and a lot of the, the broadband work I've been doing since. So a lot of LIS professionals or even students can sometimes get into the discussion about whether or not political neutrality is possible in libraries and in librarianship today. What are your thoughts on that? I'll jump at that. Um, <laughs> So I think neutrality uh, certainly has an appeal um, to to a, a element of LIS which really stresses professionalism. Uh, so we often see the ideas of professionalism linked with neutrality. You you go to your doctor, you hope he's a professional or she's a professional, and she's not going to recommend one brand of pharmaceuticals because she's getting money from that pharmaceutical company. Now we know that's not always the case. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, LIS, um, you know, we, we see this this kind of spectrum of some people thinking, um, you know, I can go in, I can work for a library, academic or public, uh, and and I should be neutral. Uh, I think they feel that you know the the institution itself inherently has some public good qualities, um, and that's a, a kind of traditional perspective. I think for uh, for some, um, that of course has been kind of well critiqued. Uh, the argument being that. Uh, neutrality is really uh, an argument for the status quo, uh, which in a North American context is uh, a kind of capitalist democratic society. Uh, and so there's been a kind of push uh, to realize that uh, you know neutrality is a, a myth to some degree. Um, and you see various theoretical perspectives being brought in. I mean, 
Gramsci and hegemony is perhaps the one of the kind of most useful ways of thinking about this. Um, you know that uh, if you're just in favor of the status quo, that you're actually uh, enhancing and entrenching existing power and social relations. So um, we certainly see a number of uh, you know groups, individuals, uh, really pushing against neutrality and saying it's not just enough to say the library is good, people can come, they can get resources, etc. Um, we have to do more to kind of constantly be uh, challenging the trappings of neutrality and the, how it can uh, kind of establish the or further entrench the status quo. From from a Marxist point of view, the, the the real red flag around neutrality is that it's almost always unqualified, right? When when people will talk about and it, it seems to happen rarer, more rarely these days than than it used to, when people do bring out the idea of libraries being neutral, the word neutral. Um, doesn't typically come along with a definition, doesn't typically come along with qualifiers or adjectives. It can be defined, and if you hunt in the literature, you can find definitions of what neutrality is supposed to be. But a lot of times it's thrown out there without any kind of qualification, um, which, which is usually a sign that there's something going on. Um, Marxists are, are fond of the concept of reification, where um, relationships between people appear as objective relations between things. So even the way we phrase it, we say libraries are neutral, mm -hmm. rather than saying librarians or library workers are engaged in relationships with their communities, with structures of power. Um, how does that um, connect to this idea of these objective things being neutral within society? Um, and, and certainly, as, as Michael said, the, there's a lot of critique around those things coming from various points of view. Um, and I think, I think a Marxist point of view is, is a, a useful one, but there are many others. Um, the, other, the other point that I'll add is I find that there's an interesting, uh, complicating tension in library work between a kind of uh, technocratic view um, which you can find most often in technical services, so cataloging, for example, um, where they'll talk about their work as being um, objective and almost scientific, right? That there are ways, there are procedures, there's a body of knowledge and a body of technique that can be used to maintain the neutrality of the work that they do. Uh, that's become... Uh, heavily critiqued over the last little while, especially in the area of Library of Congress subject headings, which are held up as this kind of objective uh, model of the way the world works, but in fact uh, build in all of these biases and points of view and inequalities that, as Michael said, we end up simply replicating in the work that we do. Um, other areas of, of librarianship, um, public service, I think, and especially public service in a public library context, are a little more aware of the slipperiness of that idea. Um, but I find that it, it, it has kind of a, a stronghold within technical services. Yeah, I had never thought about that division of services that way. But I think there's, like, even if you look at it from an epistemology type of point of view, sure. you look at, like, constructivist with more of that, like, humanist approach, more of that relationship building, whereas when you're getting to this technical side, there's more of this positivist viewpoint, I find, where it's like one truth, one right answer, mm -hmm. whereas we can see there's these biases already constructed into that. So I find that... Michael, you look like you want to say something. Yes, <laughs> uh, and another key group to highlight in all of this, of course, is, is management, mm -hmm. uh, where you typically have had people who've been um, you know, slowly, perhaps working their way up. Um, but that's one group where there's often more 
um, kind of political concerns. Um, so, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, we see lots of interesting debates uh, within the field. Uh, you know, one of the, the classic examples is always, you know, what, what do we call the people who come in and use the libraries? <laughs> um, one of the things we've seen uh, over the past 10 years, and, and EPL is a good example here in Edmonton, um, you're a customer. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, lots of good uh, work done on, you know, kind of fleshing out that argument. Does having customers necessarily mean that you're bringing in a, uh, corporate uh, consumerist model and mentality, uh, and I know you know m- me personally. I certainly think that that is uh, that's true. That that represents the kind of encroachment of market ideology into a public service. Uh, so we have lots of these different kind of examples of uh, you know where where the, do we see um, different ideologies kind of working them out in what I think. For most people who go into the library, they probably never think about, am I being called a patron or a user or a client Mm -hmm. or a customer? Uh, But at least within the discipline now, there's a lot more critical reflection on this. Uh, What I notice is that the mechanism by which a lot of those unconscious things become conscious and a lot of those unquestioned things start to be questioned is in labor struggles. Um, So we can see with the Long Island University lockout that people who likely would never have considered themselves particularly radical finally found themselves in a very clear position with respect to the university administration. Um, and a lot of the things, um, the, 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 what we call patrons or users or customers is a good example. A, a lot of those things kind of get discussed in a non-urgent way um, in a, a lot of the, the talks that we have in, in librarianship, but become extremely urgent and extremely important when labor issues are on the table, for example. So it's a interesting process. We... I think it's really important to acknowledge that you both have academic freedom, too, to voice these opinions and to come on this show and talk so frankly, candidly about these issues. And so what would you say to those who may not have that privilege of academic freedom but still want to voice political discontent in the library context or even I mean, we have a lot of student listeners, and student listeners are people who are going out into the workforce looking for jobs and don't necessarily have that freedom to speak very candidly about what they see as being issues and things they want to change in that political sphere. Within academic libraries, uh, the vast majority of us have enshrined academic freedom and solid mechanisms whereby we can... Um, bring a grievance to the association if we feel that academic freedom has been um, infringed. Um, in public libraries, that's not the case. Uh, typically in public libraries, the, the, the union that librarians are part of is part of a wider um, city union or public service union, which doesn't, uh, doesn't tend to think too much about intellectual freedom as a value of its workers or of its organizations. Um, so they're, they're sort of stuck in that respect. Uh, and we can see that in, in discussions that have happened over the last couple of years, primarily by academic librarians, around the, the problem of public librarians not being able to speak about their own labor issues or their own uh, views of intellectual freedom or anything like that. Um, I've been reading recently about the history of Uh, academic librarian unionization and recognition of academic status, how we got academic freedom in the Canadian context. Um, And we typically nowadays are part of faculty associations um, with some 
exceptions like the the McMaster Librarians Union. Um, but that wasn't always the only model that was on the table. Um, in some provinces, suggestions were made that there should be a province-wide librarian or union, which would then be able to uh, uphold the values that its membership agreed upon. Um, and I actually think that might be worth something that we could think about. Um, instead of academic librarians being in one union with faculty and public librarians being in another union with, with other constituencies of city workers, what if we had a provincial or a nationwide union that then had the teeth to support however we defined intellectual freedom? Um, I, I find that that you know, I, I've only been a librarian for nearly 10 years, um, but despite uh, open avowal of the principle of intellectual freedom on the part of the Canadian Library Association, it didn't seem to have any effect on actual library workers within public libraries. Um, so, so perhaps there's another way that we could think about the structure of librarian, library worker organization, which might even the playing field in that respect. Uh, and we've also seen the intellectual freedom debate uh, play out uh, in a rather sharp way uh, here in Canada. Uh, I guess it was 2012, uh, and not in the public or academic sector, but at Library and Archives Canada with their code mm -hmm. of conduct, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I don't think draconian uh, is an overstatement at all. I mean, they talked about going into classrooms as being a high-risk activity. And while we didn't see an entire amelioration of all the problematic elements of the code, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of work done to, to soften uh, that code. And uh, of course, it's important to note, too, that that code was in part a response to the activism of Canadian archivists, and they're on to Ottawa track to protest uh, the cuts to the National Archive, Archival Development Program. So um, really kind of looking at these issues uh, and, and, you know, uh, recognizing that tension between uh, how much do we as, as individuals identify with the library as a whole uh, versus as librarians specifically on the uh, the labor and work side of things. I think most people would agree the some of the policy changes and decisions that were made by the Harper government were very challenging for libraries and archives. Um, in the new Trudeau era, do you guys feel that there has been changes? And if so, what? You, you have the facts. So. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I have yet to see the photo of, uh, of Trudeau going through the dumpsters of the fisheries and oceans libraries, pulling out the books. Um, so, yeah, I mean, under the, under the Harper government, there were any number of, uh, of problematic changes. So uh, there were the cuts at LAC and the Code of Conduct and all kinds of other problems at LAC. We had the uh, 16 consolidated or closed federal libraries. Um, we had the kind of very quiet uh, disappearance of about half of the government of Canada's web content. Uh, so there were there were no shortage of, of kind of issues. Um, in terms of what the new government has done, I think there's a few things you can point to and say, well, there's there's some discussion at this point. So um, they have very clearly flagged access to information reform as a, as a topic. Um, all parties in opposition like to talk about that. No governing parties really like to see that through. Uh, so we'll see where that uh, that will likely take. Uh, there'll be some steps there. Uh, there's also a large Canadian content review coming out of the Heritage Department, which 
may have very uh, varied implications for all kinds of sectors in Canada, including libraries. Uh, but I, I dug down. I went into the uh, LAC, Library and Archives Canada, report on plans and priorities. And this is really where you can see what, what's actually planned. And uh, looking at the 2016-17 document, uh, which projects out to 2018-19, there's no growth in uh, employment. Uh, and so... Uh, employment is held stable, but there's no uh, indication that they're going to reverse the cuts there. Uh, and the budget does shrink very slightly uh, from $116 million to $113 million. So that's one place where you can say, you know, very specifically, here, here's the numbers, here's the estimates. Uh, there isn't a, a dramatic reversal. Uh, and I think a number of the other uh, Harper cuts or, or issues, you know, the, the closed libraries, I have yet to see the the evidence that we're going to reopen those. The uh, the disappearance of, of federal government web content that's that's gone. It's uh, it's not going to come back. I really appreciate your look at the Canadian context. I kind of want to push that worldwide. So I'm just wondering, for those concerned about this current political atmosphere in America, and to the lesser extent in Canada. What can we do to be engaged and create changes in library professions? That's, that's, that's a really interesting question, and it's one that I've been worrying about the last little while. Um, quite often, librarians or library workers who are interested in these things will tend to rely on the work that they know, assuming that the, the things that they're good at, annotated bibliographies, etc., um, by nature of being library work, uh, therefore have a practical effect on countering tendencies that, that we see in the world. Um, I, I don't see librarianship that way. I don't think it's this messianic profession that's going to... Um, that's going to change the world. I do think that the election of Donald Trump um, and the people that he's appointed to his cabinet sends a signal to um, big business and to the right wing, which pretty much the same thing, that uh, it's open season on whatever they want to do. So the two big threats that I see right now are climate change and the rise of the right, um, both of which predominantly affect um, racial minorities in different respects and from a library point of view what we would call underserved populations um, so a lot of new immigrants um, the public libraries do a really good job trying to reach out to new immigrants to help them um, get acclimatized to wherever they're settling um, we tend not to do such a great job around um, sort of across the board we tend not to do a great job around uh, indigenous peoples um, there are exceptions to that of course EPL does some good work um, a lot of the work done out of Winnipeg Public Library is really good um, but I think that we're really going to have to think about what are the practical things that we can do to fight the rise of the right wing um, and to fight climate change some way or another um, the most obvious way that I can see right now is supporting um, indigenous activism against pipeline development, for example, which is already going on in the U.S., which is, I'm sure, about to come to Canada um, in the very near future, given the Prime Minister's approval of two new pipelines. Um, but, but I don't think that the work that we're going to do, I don't think we can rely on that being library work. I think that may end up being 
work that is not traditional library work, um, helping out however we can in those areas. So in terms of, uh, of, of what we can do uh, more broadly, uh, I mean, the, the first thing is to, to get people to, to engage and, uh, and to really do that in a critical manner. I mean, not just panic and, uh, and mm-hmm. think that this is you know, the end of the world on January 20th. Um, and it's also important to see, I mean, some of the, the global connections in all of this, too. Um, you know, Europe, there'll be a number of elections in Europe, uh, and it'll be quite interesting to see um, what happens there. Taking it all the way back down to, to librarians and, uh, and library workers, um, I think uh, here in Canada, perhaps we're, we're a little bit fortunate in that one of the things that is, is really attracting a lot of concern within the profession is, uh, is truth and reconciliation. And uh, I think if we, uh, we can use that as a kind of focal point uh, for thinking not only about addressing residential schools um, and the, the legacy of residential schools, but thinking more broadly about, uh, you know, the implications of uh, the colonial history that we have, the kind of capitalist and class-based system that that produces. Uh, and so using uh, TRC as a little bit of a focal point to, uh, to think about how we can address uh, not just residential schools, and of course it's a very important thing to address, but a, a broader range of, uh, of social and political uh, disadvantages and, and problems. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Well, we're coming to the end of our time with you today, and so we are going to ask you the question we've been asking all our guests on the show. The hardest question. The hardest question, <laughs> that's right. Uh, do you have anything you are reading right now, either related or not related to politics in the library, that you would recommend to our listeners? Or things you've recently read, too. It doesn't have to be right away. Um, I guess the first thing I would say that I, I recommend that everybody go back and read Marx. Um, there, there's a lot there. There's a lot to get out of it. Um, but most recently, I've been reading um, a book that came out of Library Juice Press, I think, last year. Uh, called In Solidarity, um, edited by Jennifer Decker and Mary Kanduk, and it's um, a collection of essays around um, the history and the practice of labor organizations, labor organizing of academic librarians, and it's been fascinating to get some of the background and context of the things that we're dealing with on a daily basis. I'll second uh, the recommendation for In Solidarity and add, of course, at this time of year, the only thing I'm reading is term papers. Um, but <laughs> Any really good ones you recommend? <laughs> uh, I'll specifically, um, you know, if, if people are interested in the neutrality question, Robert Jensen wrote a paper in 2006 called The Myth of the Neutral Profession. Of course, it was on the reading list uh, for the students this year, uh, and it doesn't focus on librarianship at all. Uh, but it focuses on uh, professions in general. And I think that's a, a really good argument. Uh, you know, it's 10 years old, but it doesn't lose anything in terms of, uh, of looking at neutrality. And uh, if, if you know, people want to get into uh, to the original work, uh, and uh, I, I always recommend uh, Gramsci's Prison Notebooks. Uh, mindful that the Selections is a good edited <laughs> version of the, I think, 17 volumes he wrote while he was in prison. So... Um, Selections from the Prison Notebook. That was Michael and Sam in conversation with Celine Garo Brennan and Larissa McLeod discussing politics in the library. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries, a show about librarians and the issues that matter to them on CJSR. And politics impact more than just books. So let's go over to Lindsay Campbell for this month's film reviews. 
Hi, my name is Lindsay, and this is The Shout for Libraries Movie Review. Since the topic this month is politics, I thought that I would talk about a very political box set of old movies. This box set is called the Controversial Classics box set. It was released in 2005 by Warner Home Video. The films in this box set range from 1932 to 1962, which is a very interesting period in Hollywood. In 1930, and it lasted through the late 60s, Hollywood implemented something called the Hayes Code, and this was sort of a list of points of don'ts and be carefuls of things that should not appear in film. These included things such as profanity and nudity, but also miscegenation, scenes of actual childbirth, and of course ridicule of the clergy. There were also many points on the list of things in which uh, good taste should be emphasized, such as representing sympathy for criminals, sedition, uh, the use of drugs, and of excessive or lustful kissing. But during the 90s, 50s, and the 60s, the codes started to decline. Otto Preminger is one director who notably violated the code repeatedly during the 1950s. So during the 50s, increasingly explicit material on film begins to appear. And this is part and parcel because of the import of liberal foreign content that's coming over to North America as well as directors figuring out that they could challenge the code, and that, really, honestly, it wasn't very enforceable. And by the late 1960s, enforcement had become completely impossible, and the code was completely abandoned. But, of course, something had to take its place. The MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, worked uh, on a rating system that they implemented in the late 1960s. Uh, in 1966, Mike Nichols' Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the first film to feature a rating, and it was given a rating of SMA for suggested mature for mature audiences. So part of this box set is that a lot of these films are very political, and a couple of them are social problem films. Possibly we could classify all of them as social problem films. The social problem film is a genre that really flourished in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and it changed a bit in the 1950s. In the 1950s, it changed a little bit because of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which was kind of connected to McCarthyism and this hunt for communism, and it really dampened a lot of left-leaning voices in Hollywood. Uh, regardless, the, the genre still flourished. So a uh, social problem film usually has to do with uh, translating a large social issue uh, into an individual conflict between a couple of characters. And this usually deals with maybe the horrors of war or suffering of the poor, of addiction, the rights of women, and so on and so forth. So the, the films in this box set are inherently political, uh, both in the theme and subject, as well as in their being made, in their actual act of challenging censorship and not conforming to restrictive regulations. So I'm not going to go through all of the films in detail, but I will tell you what all the films are. The first film is I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. This is a pre-code film from 1932, and uh, it's, uh, it's, about, it's got a deep criticism of the judicial system and of prisons. Then we've got, from 1936, Fritz Lang's Fury, which was his first American film. It starred Spencer Tracy. Uh, in 1955, we've got Blackboard Jungle, directed by Richard Brooks, nominated notably for four Oscars, and it starred a young Sidney Poitier as a teacher dealing with an inner-city classroom made of juvenile delinquents. Also in 1955, we've got John Sturge's Bad Day at Black Rock, which won Spencer Tracy Best Actor at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. My favorite film in the collection is A Face in the Crowd. This is a film from 1957 by Ilya Kazan. 
very relevant and timely even today. It holds up very well. This is a movie about a common man who's promoted to national fame and becomes this uh, sort of TV idol. Uh, the Americanization of Emily is an anti-war political satire starring Julie Andrews from 1955. And I mentioned Otto Preminger before. His film Advise and Consent is in the box set. This is his 1962 film. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And also, again, very relevant and timely. This is about a president who nominates a man for secretary of state who's got a hidden past and he's a shady dude. And it's about uh, the sort of political circus that ensues. So this is a very relevant and timely box set all around. That was Lindsay Campbell and her review of the box set called Controversial Classics. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to our guests, Michael and Sam, as well as to all of our contributors, including Bulat Nugmanov, who composed our theme music. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at shout for libraries That's Shout and the number four libraries. And also like us on Facebook. Once again, this has been Jesse. And this is Rachel. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. 